Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week of The Learning Curve. I have on the line my co-host, my co-host, the great Gerard Robinson from a bunker somewhere. Where were you? You're like, you're in rural. You got internet? What are you doing? Uh, just hanging out in a different part of Virginia today, enjoying the weather and looking at the beautiful water. Uh, looking at the beautiful, I picture you probably like, yeah, I, I, we were having some connection issues. So, you know, we were, we were afraid we we're going to lose you there for a minute, my friend. Particularly since you called me a co-horse. Yes. Did I call you a co-horse? It's been a long day, Gerard. It's been a really long day. I had to tell you, you know, I took, um, I took uh, Friday and Monday off of work to spend time with my kids and it was lovely, but I think it was a little more work than work. So I'm a little tired. Not going to lie. I know. Um, you are forgiven. I know how it works. I know you do. Okay. So a quick question. I've been thinking here and I've been thinking about that, like we're, believe it or not, we're nearing the end of 2020. And I don't want to talk about the election because I just have election fatigue, et cetera. But we're now pretty well into the start of the school year, Gerard. And I want to know, like in everything that has been surprising in this crazy year, when you think about schools and you think about education, maybe it's what your own kids are doing or what you're seeing just, you know, like witnessing across the country. Um, is there anything that's surprising you about what's happening in education right now? Two things. One, school systems, states knew six months in advance of school opening that we likely would be in the same situation. The fact that some states responded better than others uh, is a little, I think, somewhat surprising because some of the states we thought would not because they're smaller doing well and vice versa. I think our state of Virginia has done a, a good job. Um, they've had, they put together a task force at the state level. They've done some good things, but some other states have not. So I think that's one thing that surprised me. Number two is how much philanthropists and others have underestimated the, what I call the mama moment. The number <laughs> of moms who have gotten together amongst themselves with no one's permission to make sure their schools were either going to open or if not to have a pod or if no pod to have hybrid. I mean, the moms have created a network. It's always been there, but they've crossed geographic lines. They've crossed racial lines, religious lines, uh, economic lines. And a lot of the things that you see are because of the mama moments when they say, we're not going to wait for anyone else to get this done. We're going to do it. And I just think that, you know, philanthropists and others just overlook the power of that. You and I know the importance of parental choice, but here's parental voice in ways that people just have not seen who are usually outside the confines of our movement. Yeah. I hope people will stop underestimating the power of the mama, because I got to tell you, I think I love that response. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to give you mine because that one was just so perfect, especially for this one tired mama here. <laughs> but it also, it also goes to my story of the week, which is from, um, I actually, it's so funny. I, I heard it this morning. Well, it was, um, our wonderful producer, Jamie Gass had sent it to me and I hadn't read it yet. And then I actually heard it this morning when listening to NPR. So I'm going to say her name wrong, I think, but it's Anya Kamenetz. And, mm -hmm. um, it's the, the title is that this is something you and I know, right. But I think that, that like diving into it's kind of interesting pandemic seems to be driving school enrollment down NPR investigation shows. So, okay. Of course they're talking about public schools. So something that I, um, I actually wouldn't 
have predicted, I think, is that is how many people were going to, even if it's temporarily, leave public schools. I think many of us thought it was an outside possibility. I had um, one really smart colleague who told me, I think this might make people love their public schools more. I would like to say, I don't know that that's actually happened. <laughs> and this, these data would say it hasn't. But this article is, is interesting in the sense that it dives into some of the reasons we think for that. And the first thing is that it's really elementary school enrollment that's down. So, um, mm, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you're looking at, I mean, those of us that have really little ones. Like my uh, four-year-old is not going to do remote learning if his school has to go remote (laughs) because it's an impossible thing to do. And I think a lot of parents who are working from home, if they have a kindergartner, or maybe they have a child who, for whatever reason, not age, um, is they've decided, you know what, this remote learning thing isn't working. So I'm going to like bite the bullet and make this work for a year. So that's, that's one reason. And I'm not saying that people are always happy about keeping their kids home. I think they're, they're doing it for various reasons. And some, some of them straight up are doing it because like, as you said, it's the mama moment. Some mamas and papas are saying, I don't feel safe. COVID rates are high here. I do not feel mm-hmm. safe sending my kid to school in my community. So we're going to stay home. We're going to figure it out. Um, and they, and they're not, you know, so they're pulling their kid out of school to say, we're going to make something different happen. But then the second one is we know, and this is the one that scares me a little bit. And I'll tell you why it scares me, um, is that we know that folks who can are fleeing for private schools, which are much more likely to be operating with live instruction, at least in part, most often in full. And this scares me not because I don't want people to flee for private schools. I think people should do whatever, as you know, they need to do whatever they want to do. And I think that our government should be helping people to access the options they need. I should say state governments should be doing that. But the thing is this, you know, We've talked about boons in enrollment in some private schools, especially those that many of us, myself included, um, like Catholic schools, we thought were going to um, just so many, so many were going to close. Now, many have closed. We need to underscore that. Many closed before these late August sort of upticks in enrollment. But it's a double-edged sword because I think a lot of private schools right now are wondering if these sort of boosts that they're seeing in enrollment are real. What are they going to do next year? Maybe they've invested in additional facilities for social distancing, among other things. And are they going to take a hit once this thing is all over, will people return to public school? Many of them will, especially if they don't have uh, tuition assistance in one form or another. And then, you know, the, the final thing that we need to talk about here is that, um, you know, it's just that people are finding their own way. As you said, the mama moment, right? Look, whether it's forming a pandemic pot because they're looking at the remote learning that they're being offered and they're saying, this is no good. Um, it's really just, it's interesting to see. I'm, I'm interested to watch what happens with enrollment going forward. And I'm interested to see what barriers this will break down, not just in terms of giving parents more resources for homeschooling or pandemic pods, but also like this exposes, you know, we always, people, people, I don't think, think about public schools as a market. (laughs) Those, those who don't like private school choice say, Oh, you want to marketize education. You want to privatize education. Public schools, friends, they are a market. They're complaining right now. Enrollment's going down. You can't do this to us because we're going to lose money. Well, I don't know what that is, if not talking about a market. So what do you think, Gerard? I think you're spot on. When we say public education, we tout it because we say it's free. And you and I know that freedom isn't free. Someone's paying the cost. 
And when we have said for over 15 years that families make decisions about what's best for their family, a lot of those decisions are taking place within the public school system. I mean, public school choice is older than private and public school choice. But as relates to this, yeah, it's really exposing that public schools, in fact, are a market because they have to respond to the whims of the market, both good and bad. Before there was uh, COVID-19, we had a problem with teacher absenteeism. And we all of a sudden are shocked that some teachers may not want to return to school because they're concerned about their health. And that's a very legitimate issue. But that has led a number of parents, and I've heard them say it, say, well, if the teachers aren't in the classroom, why? Yeah, maybe it's health. But then they're looking deeper into it and finding out that absenteeism has been a problem for a number of years in their county. So that's raised some questions. Number two, hybrid or in this situation, virtual education has been available to many students, for example, in Virginia, uh, going back to the 80s, long before this. Some parents said they loved it. Some parents said they hated it because it, it, it took children away from the confines of a classroom. Some of those same parents are now begging to find unique ways to get their children a hybrid model or totally virtual. So I'm with you. I think this is going up. I think it is. I know it's changing how we look at public school and schools in the public's interest. And what you and I have been supporting are schools in the public's interest, whether it's private, public, public charter, virtual, Montessori, otherwise. We've been for really a smorgasbord approach. Others have said if you're not public school only, then you're not for public education, and that's not true. Well, now you have millions of parents, sometimes in a unique way, saying, are these public schools, are they schools in the public's interest? That's a new question. And how it will play out next September? We'll have to wait and see. It's title of your next book. There you go. <laughs> I'm looking for a good title. I think you've given me something to work with. <laughs> Always here to help. Well, I know you don't want to talk about presidential politics, but I've got to get this one in. And it's you got to do it. You got to do story. it. I've got to do one. And this is from Politico. Uh, and it's from the ninth of this month by Megan Casella. And the title, Unions Predict a Great Awakening During a, Bri a Biden Presidency. And they talk about the number of union presidents and leaders who are in conversation with his uh, transition team. He's appointed a couple of union presidents to his advisory transition uh, group as well. They are providing him with recommendations of names of people to look at. They're providing policies. Of course, if he wins these things, not all, but some will go into effect. But what I really found interesting about this is the part where they say he may appoint a union member to uh, the Secretariat for either Education or mm -hmm. for Labor. And understandably so. But I think what this article really points out, and I think it's worth a good read because it talks about two things we often really don't spend a lot of time on, not you and I, but just as a country. One is labor. 10% uh, of those who are employed are in labor, labor uh, unions. That's 10% less than what it was uh, in 1983. So we don't talk a lot about unions. And number two, we often don't talk about the power of who becomes a secretary and what does it signal. And so if you're saying that Biden is going to have, you know, this just great windfall or great awakening, you have to say, wait a minute, he was in office four years ago. It wasn't as if there wasn't a Democratic president. Mm 
but we have to remember, President Obama received the lowest uh, rating from the yeah. EEA of any presidential uh, person they supported going back to the 80s with Carter. The NEA and AFT were not fans of President Obama uh, because of his support of teacher accountability, his support of charter schools, his support of uh, standards and teaching, a lot of other factors. But the fact that they say this could be a great awakening means that, A, this, you know, Biden could be the first pro-labor, pro-friendly president we've had in 12 years. We know that President Donald Trump would not account in this uh, equation at all. But the fact that Biden was part of the Obama administration for eight years, but they see him as being the Great Awakening, speaks to some of the fissures that have existed in the Democratic Party for over three decades. Uh, Robert Reich, former labor secretary, has talked about this for a number of years. That the Democratic Party in some ways has become a party of K Street bundlers, East West Coast elites, and that you're losing the working class, something that Trump was able to pick up on when he ran for office. But they're now saying that if Biden wins, this could be a big uh, awakening for unions. And if the Democrats capture the Senate, it could be. But even if they don't capture the Senate and they capture the presidency and they keep the, uh, the House, I do think it's going to be a big win. And maybe for the first time, we'll actually see a classroom teacher or someone with classroom experience as the Secretary of Education, who is a member of a union. And that would be a great awakening moment for that position. Yeah, it would. I mean, at first I heard you say the title and I thought, well, I didn't understand. I'm thinking about teachers unions here that they were that they were sleeping because they seem to be you know, <laughs> quite, quite vocal as of late. But um, but I see it. And I would just hope that a, um, you know, a hypothetical President Biden would um, would take some lessons from, I think, one of the one of the strengths of President Obama when it came to, for example, you pointed out, he he unabashedly supported charter schools and teacher evaluation. And, uh, and you know, they still, who else were they going to support? They didn't like it. But um, it's very interesting that the union still had to throw their support behind the Democratic candidate. I, I would, I listen, I would be all for seeing somebody with deep classroom experience in that position. Um, I think it could be fascinating. But I certainly hope that um, this is, when it comes to education, not the undoing of so many of the reforms that we know uh, teachers unions especially like to love to hate, um, but that mm -hmm. have proven track records for actually helping kids. So um, I think we're going to have, as always, a lot to talk about. Um, we've got a great guest coming up today, Gerard. You know her. I know her. I think we both, I think we might have served on a panel together that you moderated. We're going to be talking to uh, Cheryl Brown Henderson, and she is the president of the Brown Foundation for Educational Equity, Excellence, and Research, right after this. Learning Curve listeners, today we have with us Cheryl Brown Henderson. She is one of the three daughters of the late Reverend Oliver L. Brown, who, with NAACP attorneys, filed suit against the local Board of Education. Their case was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court on May 17, 1954. And you know what this decision was. It was the landmark decision, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. 
Cheryl is the founding president of the Brown Foundation for Educational Equity, Excellence Research, and owner of Brown & Associates, an educational consulting firm. She has an extensive background in education, business, and civic leadership, having served on and chaired various state, local, and national boards. She earned a bachelor's degree in elementary education, minor in mathematics from Baker University, Baldwin City, Kansas, a master's degree in guidance and counseling from Emporia State University in Emporia, Kansas, and an honorary doctorate from Washburn University and the recipient of an honorary degree from the University of South Florida. Cheryl Brown Henderson, such a good friend of Pioneer Institute. Thank you so much for being with us on the learning curve today. Oh, you're very welcome. I look forward to our discussion today. Yeah, we're we're incredibly excited to have you. And I think a lot of our listeners are, are going to be really excited to hear from you. So before we dive into some of the um, questions that might be uh, pertinent to this current moment that we are all working in and that you're doing a lot of work in, um, we want to learn a little bit more about yourself and your family. I mean, what a... <laughs> What a landmark um, decision! What a what a moment in American history um, to be to be so intimately acquainted with. So that landmark Supreme Court decision, Brown v. Board of Education, it's it remains among the most important. Will always be in our nation's history. And we thank you, of course, for the contributions of yourself and your family to everything that it's meant for civil rights and racial equality. Um, could you share with those who, who haven't had the privilege of listening to you speak, what have been the real joys and the burdens that this, that making that kind of history has meant for your family? Well, you know, first of all, I think people have to realize that every Supreme court decision um, is, is named for somebody. <laughs> There's some family, some person behind Miranda, and of course, behind Roe, behind Brown, behind Loving. You know, they're always people. And every family is impacted differently um, by these cases. And uh, one of the questions people ask in terms of how does it feel to be so intimately associated with a landmark Supreme Court decision and not to be flippant, but my response is always, I don't know. And the reason I say that is because my father made the decision. He joined the, the group that the NAACP was recruiting to bring the Kansas lawsuit. And then, of course, it was joined with lawsuits from uh, Virginia, South Carolina, Washington, D.C., and Delaware. And before I was born. So basically, the die was cast. I was born into this, and I don't have a pre and post Brown comparison that I could make for anyone. And with that said, once I became an adult and really understood the depth, the significance of this precedent setting case, um, it was a sense of responsibility and, and awe in some ways that my parents had unknowingly, you know, become part of something that mm -hmm. will live uh, forever, you know, and certainly change this trajectory of this country. And I wonder sometimes if I'm doing enough because there have been flashpoints, you know, in, in the, the 74, for example, the 20th anniversary of Brown, I was actually teaching at one of the schools that had been involved in the case. It had been the one of the wow. segregated African-American schools. And then again, in, you know, 84, like anniversary years all, always become flashpoints. Well, finally, in the late 1980s, I think it was the, the defining flashpoint for me was a coworker who very pointedly said, if this community, you know, talking about Topeka, 
is not commemorating or recognizing on an annual basis uh, Brown v. Board, isn't that your responsibility? And I, I, I thought for a moment, my goodness, I'd never looked at it that way. So that was really the turning point that led me to establishing the Brown Foundation, you know, working with Congress to establish a Brown v. Board National Historic Site, which is a national park, you know, working with Congress to create a presidential commission for the 50th anniversary. And it really put me on this path of taking responsibility and a different type of pride in being so associated with the Brown v. Board. But but long before you, um, as you put it, decided to take that responsibility or or had that insight, you had become an educator. And I think a lot of people might read into that and say, well, there must be some sort of connection there. Is there or are the two unrelated, you think? No, ironically, there's not. When I went off to college in uh, 1968 as a 17-year-old, I, you know, didn't have an idea of what I wanted to be when I grew up. And as you know, your junior year in college, your advisor sits you down and says, okay, it's time to declare a major. And looking back at my coursework, that's when the decision was made that going into um, elementary education would be an appropriate major and mathematics as an appropriate minor um, because of the math courses I had taken at the university level. So, no, it was just happenstance that led me to become a teacher. That's, that's fascinating. I think I bet you a lot of people would be um, surprised by that, looking at your bio and and um, and thinking about the, the decision. I'd like to before we we get to the current moment, which we which we will. Um, I want to ask you a question that pertains to where I sit and and where Pioneer Institute is, of course, and that's up here in Massachusetts. And, you know, people often rightly, but think about the South when they think about segregation uh, in American education. Um, One could argue our schools are still incredibly segregated today. Um, But in also the origins of the idea of separate but equal can actually be found in an 1849 Massachusetts court case, Roberts v. City of Boston. In that case, sought to end racial discrimination in the Boston public schools, something which a lot of um, children and families of color are still fighting for today. Um, and then you mentioned another flashpoint in the 1970s in, in Boston here. We had a flashpoint, the busing crisis of the mid-1970s that occurred in many major urban centers. Um, and that was more than a decade after the dramatic events, Martin Luther King and Reverend Shuttlesworth in in Birmingham, Alabama. So can you talk a little bit, give us some insights about this battle for equality of educational opportunity outside of the South in places like the Northeast and the Midwest? Well, I think that first of all, we need to recognize that separation, segregation, discrimination, all of those things emanated from slavery and a period in time when African-Americans were even below second-class citizens. And certainly there was a push not to um, change that status because the country really economically was the economic engine, you know, slavery and the the labor it provided and the wealth it created. And education was uh, not even permitted. People that were enslaved were not allowed to be educated. To learn to read and write uh, was a punishable offense. And even... Uh, whites who would sit with African-Americans to engage in the educating, reading, writing, and mathematics could be 
you know, ran the risk of being charged criminally for educating um, an enslaved person. So a lot of this came from, and I'm saying all this because the North was not free from the institution of slavery. You know, it was something that permeated, especially mm-hmm. the, the East Coast in the early development of our country. And we were left with the, with the residuals of that and, and the attitude. Now, separate but equal, as you know, was not codified until 1896 with Plessy versus Ferguson, even though we know that 1849 was Roberts versus City of Boston, preceded Plessy by, you know, many, many years. And, you know, Boston was unique in that regard, you know, that that would be a statement made because, as I said, the statement or the idea or the concept of separate but equal is not codified until uh, years later in, in um, Plessy. But to me, the whole idea that people of African descent who had been enslaved and had been viewed as less than had been in, in the Constitution considered only three-fifths of person, there was a real push everywhere that that status would not be changed. If you look at Dred Scott in 1857, which was after Roberts, again, uh, the Supreme Court in that decision said basically it was never intended that uh, enslaved people would become citizens. So we're all over the map with, with how people of color, particularly people of African descent are being viewed. And are, can they be citizens? Can they not? You know, can they be educated? Can they not? Uh, do they have access and, and rights um, even, even post-Civil War, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment? You know, we're still fighting some of those issues today. So the North was not um, free from that discussion. And as far west as Kansas was not free from that discussion of um, how African-Americans would be treated um, post-Civil War, post-slavery. So I always tell people that I believe the South won, excuse me, that they won the ideological war. The North won the physical war, but the South won the ideological war, (laughs) which is why we are still talking about whether or not Black Lives Matter. Um, And of course, Schools are not uh, isolated. They're not islands. So what happens in a larger society happens in our classrooms. Teachers don't walk into classrooms absent bias. You know, everything that we see outside of the classroom happens in the classroom. So I know it's, it's sort of a convoluted answer to the question, but I do want your listeners to know that, that the North, the Northeast, the Midwest, um, even some places beyond Kansas, we're not free from the biases that permeated the South and that we only assigned to, to Southern uh, politics. Sure. Actually, I would I would push and say I don't think it's a convoluted answer at all. I think it it helps to explain in in very small part some of the some of what we are experiencing right now in in 2020 in places um, in the North where um, people of even my generation um, and I say that as you know, not that I'm very young, but that uh, these weren't things that um, I ever talked about growing up or talked about in school. And now people who grew up in places like the Midwest and the Northeast are starting to confront the fact that um, we weren't, that these states weren't just, you know, um, uh, on the side of good, that, we, uh, that we've always had our own very troubling history and issues with race relations. And that's, so you've touched upon something really important here too, in saying that 
you know, um, we're not really talking necessarily, maybe those of us in the circle or our learning curve listeners are about the impact of the, about the current moment and its relationship to our schools and, and not only what's taught in schools, but what our teachers bring to school with them and in biases and, and even what the curricula that we teach. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts. So, I mean, it was just right after the 66th anniversary of Board v. Brown of Education, that we, um, the nation was rocked by the tragic death of George Floyd. And, you know, right now, I think a lot of people in the midst of everything that's going on in 2020, um, so much of this is as it should be front and center, but people are throwing up their hands and saying everything's broken. Race relations are broken. Maybe to some they've been broken for a lot longer than others realize. But if you could talk a little bit more about the actions that you think political, educational, civic and religious leaders need to take to begin to rectify, uh, quite frankly, what is simply just baked in, as you mentioned, to the history of this country that's gotten us where we are today. Yeah, it's a very profound question and certainly something that everyone should be asking themselves. I just finished reading um, Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr.'s book. James Baldwin's America um, and its urgent lessons for our own. It's called Begin Again. Um, and I bring that up because throughout the book, he talks about how we keep beginning again with respect to race relations. It will make a bit of progress. And then, you know, something comes along and we're beginning again because there's a resurgence of uh, pushback and biases become very public. But I think one of the mistakes we made, and you know, I can't with certainty say that it was a 100% resounding success in South Africa, but one of the mistakes I think we've made is not having some sort of national reconciliation. You know, they, they did have a reconciliation commission and gave the country a chance to really talk about these hard subjects. You know, why is it that we are operating on this big lie, on this premise that white lives matter more than lives of color. You know, why aren't we examining that? And why aren't we talking about um, reconciling uh, the, the past? You know, let's, let's own it. And once we own it, then we could talk about the way forward. Now, why aren't we talking about um, having people atone in some ways, you know, which means you recognize the, the mistakes of your way. George Floyd's murder, because we all witnessed it, and I don't have a better word to call it except that. The person that for eight plus minutes had his knee on that man's neck needs to answer for that. You know, I would like to hear verbally, you know, what was it? What is it within you that says you can uh, engage in that kind of act, especially as somebody that's supposed to be serving and protecting. And we see this time and time and time again. Um, So without a national attempt at reconciliation for political leaders, for educational leaders, for civic leaders, for religious leaders as well, um, I don't see how we're ever going to be able to move forward. We can talk about criminal justice reform, but it's far more than that. And I do think we could learn something from um, the reconciliation efforts in South Africa years ago. Hi, Cheryl. It's Gerard. Good to hear your voice. Hi, Gerard. You too. Talk about reconciliation, the past. Uh, one of the things our listeners may not know about your background is 
an educator and you spend some time uh, doing work in, the, in, in this, this, this kind of work. Here's something I'd be interested in knowing. You published a book uh, about the Brown families. And as I hear you talk about uh, Professor Glaude's book in, you know, beginning again, are there some lessons from your book that you could share with us? Yeah. In 2019, the University of Kansas published a book for the Brown Foundation. And the title of the book is Recovering Untold Stories, an Enduring Legacy of the Brown versus the Board of Education Decision. And the book is a compilation, really it's an anthology of essays written by people who were involved in the five cases consolidated by the Supreme Court under the heading of Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, the legal citation of E-T-A-L at all, people don't often realize that that means these were class action cases. And in the case of Brown v. Board, there were five cases all total. I mentioned that earlier from Delaware, Kansas, Virginia, South Carolina, and Washington, D.C. I don't know if I left anybody out. But nonetheless, it was important to me, and one of the missions of the foundation was to help educate the country about this case and the sacrifices it really took to bring about Brown v. Board. You know, people stop with the lead name, you know, Oliver Brown, and they stop there. But the, the Brown v. Board is so much more complex and multifaceted. And in each of those five cases, the circumstances were unique and different. The one that stands out for me, however, was uh, Farmville, Virginia. It's after Brown v. Board, rather than allow schools to integrate, now that it was uh, the law, uh, public schools were closed for five years. And, you know, that to me says a lot about how willing people were to um, not comply and to, to hold on to their way of life rather than comply with the, the court's mandate in Brown v. Board. So I'm hoping people in reading the book will, will understand that, you know, what we're facing now with Black Lives Matter, what we're facing now with you know, the achievement gaps, what we're facing now, you know, as I said already with Eddie Glaude's book, we're, we're beginning again. You know, we keep beginning again until people really show or demonstrate the political will to stop. You know, this is not something that has to happen. This is something that people are uh, supporting, I guess I will, rather than uh, making this country really that more perfect union that we all talk about. So we're hoping that this book in some way will create an understanding that uh, what we're seeing today has been an old pattern that we have not been able to to break. Absolutely. And I just, is that, that five years, that's really a shocking amount of time, um, especially as so many parents sit here right now in 2020, perhaps not having the learning opportunities that they're accustomed to or that they want for their children. And so many of us are thinking, well, let's just get through the year. And, and to your point, you know, five years of people saying, um, I would rather not have school or keep children out of school than comply with, uh, than comply with the law. That is, it's a really powerful thing to think about, I think. I'd, I'd like to push a little bit more on what you've said about, um, you know, focusing on achievement gaps and being right in this back play, right back in the same place over and over again. Because I think for those of us who have been in education reform for at least more than a 
more than one decade, you know, <laughs> a few decades, you see, of course, this policy churn and or the same ideas sort of recycled or people questioning, well, why this idea and that. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that in the past 20 years, especially, we have seen various different kinds of efforts. Um, and I'm thinking here about, you know, how do you change traditional school districts? Do you give them less autonomy? Do you give them more autonomy? Bringing in charter public schools, uh, what we have here in Massachusetts, Metco style desegregation efforts. And, you know, all of these things have in some way drawn, they've been not only in response to this landmark to Brown v. Board of Education, but even if they weren't directly in response to it, they like to, to point to Brown v. Board of Education and, and say, well, we're doing this in the spirit of, uh, many of which explicitly meant to serve children of color, to close achievement gaps, et cetera. And some have had excellent results, but um, academic outcomes aren't the only thing that we need to think about when we think about children, when we think about families. I'm really interested um, for you to comment on whether or not you see promise in any of these reforms, um, and it, it, or if you don't. Um, and also, is there something else that we need to, other than, as you say, like break this vicious cycle of always confronting the same issue? Um, are there specific education reforms that you think we need to be doing more of to address inequity? Well, sadly, it's, it's a question in 2020 that's almost moot. And I say that because of the challenge of COVID-19. And these days, the, the challenge is in-school learning versus virtual learning. And if it's virtual learning, you know, do students have high-speed internet so that they can log into their Zoom class for the day? I mean, there's so many issues now that have been piled on, you know, top of, of all that you just said, that what you just said in terms of, um, you know, what, what, what would work it's almost smooth until we get out of this log jam of waiting for vaccines so that students can get back to what we know works best and that's in-person learning you know i i'm thinking it, it it's almost not a conversation we should be having right now um and it it, it pains me i five-year-old grandchildren, they just turned five, year old, five years old, and they are uh, pre-K, and they are online, you know, they're in Zoom, <laughs> because none of the students in, in their particular school are doing in-person learning, and what's interesting to me about that is, because they're new with this, they, they get up in the morning, they put on their school uniforms, and they go down, and they, they sit in front of their individual computers, and interact with their teachers and their classmates. And it's all they've known. So mm. when you consider that, that today, the challenge is making sure every child is as fortunate as my grandchildren and have that high-speed internet where they can you know, sit down and for, that, for their, the day, you know, be able to interact with their teacher and their classmates. And you know, for those that are going to in-person learning and sitting behind plexiglass and in classrooms that are sparse because not every parent wants to take that risk. I mean, to me, right now, there's so many greater challenges that we are facing um, that the, the question that we were hoping to get answered is, is almost smooth. And I don't mean to be flippant, but that's the way I see it right now. And until we get out of this period, 
in our history and, and for our country. And hopefully by fall of 2021, and everyone is, is going back mm-hmm. to school and the Let's question hope. you ask becomes relevant again, you know, that I, I really don't, don't see that. Um, I do wish, however, that as we move forward, that we will always have um, an experienced U.S. Secretary of Education. And I know people have heard me speak. I have lobbied from the podium that that not be an appointed position. It just mm-hmm. breaks my heart because every four to eight years we're having to uh, adjust to a new idea, you know, and educators on the ground are having to adjust to that new idea, you know, for based on what that secretary of education wants to see. And there are answers to these challenges. I won't call them problems because children are, children can learn, you know, they can't be taught, but we haven't had, the kind of continuity that that would require. We haven't had people going out and really dissecting what is it at school X, Y, Z that is working and what is it at school, you know, uh, QRX that's not working. And then sitting down and really in a contemplative way, um, starting to make the changes required because we'll keep losing too many generations of children, which is why I have supported public charter schools, public schools and private schools and, you know, whatever it's going to take. I just don't want to see our children continue to lose out because that K-12 education is, that's the launch pad. You know, without that, um, you, you can't really expect to achieve a whole lot in life. It's, I think I take your point about continuity. I think it's a really interesting one. And I hope we can have you back on uh, again to talk about it, because I think especially in this moment, you, you're right. It's hard to think about education reform. But one of the things we do see are political attacks on reforms, meaning um, groups refusing to or saying we will only do X if you get rid of charter schools or we will only do Y if you get rid of the test. So in this way, be, perhaps because some of these reforms have not become um, as institutionalized or we haven't worked on them in the way we need to to make sure that they're working for everybody, um, they become more vulnerable even if they are in the long run helping kids to um, to succeed. You said that very well mm-hmm. and I would ditto. Yes. <laughs> well, I feel privileged to get a ditto. That sounds good to me. I, I hope that we can have you back soon. This has been, we have unfortunately reached the end of our time, but this has been a fantastic conversation. And um, we always appreciate, um, I know Pioneer Institute greatly appreciates your your friendship and, and the, you share your knowledge with us. Um, and so very often we feel very lucky for that. And now um, I know that our listeners do too. So listeners of The Learning Curve, this has been, Cheryl Brown Henderson. She is the president of the Brown Foundation for Educational Equity, Excellence, and Research. Thanks so much, Cheryl, for spending this time with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot, Karen Gerard. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. And as always, we're going to close out this week with the tweet of the week. This one from Robin Lake doing some really great work over there at the um, Center for Reinventing Public Education at SERPY. Um, And the tweet is, she's quoting a parent here, 
I don't want empathy. I want actions for the education of my son. So uh, this is from an article out of the Seattle Times. Washington State children with disabilities are left behind uh, with by remote learning. And actually, this is something we mentioned just a touched on it at the top of the hour, Gerard. This is really important. I mean, we've been talking about learning loss for all kids. I don't think there's been nearly enough discussion about children with disabilities and um, and the impact of this uh, pandemic and the impact of what schools are or are not doing on their education, their opportunity, their future. So I hope that we can explore this in another show. All right. And listeners, next week, please do tune in because I think that um, we've got somebody on who can answer a lot of the questions that we've just raised. We're going to be talking to Kate Walsh, head of the National Council on Teacher Quality. So we hope that you will join in. And until then, have a safe and healthy uh, week ahead. I'll talk to you then, Gerard. Have fun in your bunker. Look forward to it. 